Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 1, Episode 11, Indian Summer. After our story, Roger Sterling's heart attack had created an existential crisis for Don and many of our characters. At the end of Long Weekend, we speculated that Don was best positioned to fill Roger's leadership role at the agency. Don's rising status at Sterling Cooper has been shown throughout season one. He's grown confident since the pilot episode, first challenging Roger during their conversation in Ladies' Room, then later in Red in the Face. We've seen Mad Men allude to Don's talent through the award he wins in 5G the bonus he's given in the hobo code, and McCann's attempts to hire him in shoot. Peggy has risen seemingly alongside Don. She began our show as his new secretary, the newest girl at the office. But through her own diligence, she's carved out work for herself as a copywriter. And Indian Summer portrays Peggy's continued rise in advertising, this time through her work on a new product, the Relaxicizer. Indian Summer is Mad Men's 11th episode, Tim Hunter directs this episode, while writer Tom Palmer returns from Marriage of Figaro. It's an episode that merges many of Mad Men's ongoing subplots, including Don's unsettled background story, Betty's unhappiness, and Peggy's uncontrollable weight gain. And it sets the stage for some significant conclusions that will play out in the last episodes of Season 1. Adam Whitman walks up to his hotel manager's window and hands him a small box wrapped in brown paper with Don Draper, misspelled in Sharpie. He asks the manager to mail the package and returns to his hotel room. Adam is disheveled, in a dirty suit, with his face unshaven. He places several stacks of bills on the table and writes a message next to the cash. Enjoy. Adam moves to the bathroom, where he loosens his belt and pulls up a chair. He stands atop the chair, threads the belt around his neck, and then around a pipe overhead. He kicks the chair out from under himself and hangs from the ceiling as his feet dangle below. We pick up our story a month after the events of Long Weekend. Don walks into the office sweating from the swell of October heat. He asks Peggy for a glass of water as Joan approaches and asks about Roger's condition. He's doing well, Don says. Joan seems flustered at the mere mention of Roger. Sterling Cooper's ad men convene in Don's office, where they look at a gadget placed on Don's coffee table. It's a small box with electric control knobs and a mess of wires that lead to a pink plastic belt shaped like women's panties. It's a weight loss machine, they discover. The Relaxicizer is an actual product, invented in 1938 by William J. Browner. It was marketed first in beauty salons as a weight loss device. Browner eventually created a suitcase-style device for in-home use, one Matthew Weiner discovered in a consignment store six years before Mad Men's debut. During World War II, the United States saw unprecedented industrialization, Most non-essential activities were halted, as nearly all available civilians and resources were redirected to manufacturing military supplies. At the end of World War II, these supplies remained in large surplus. Knobs, dials, wires. A generation of inventors saw the opportunity to profit from homemade devices assembled from these readily available parts. The Relaxicizer became a notorious example of a homemade gadget with no medical efficacy. 
The premise of the device was to stimulate muscle contractions through electrical pulses. It was expensive, costing as much as $400 in 1960. That's $3,500 today. But it sold effectively through advertising. It was endorsed by celebrities, including Doris Day, whose movies we covered in Long Weekend. As the Relaxicizer's commercial success grew, it attracted attention from the FDA, as noted by historian Suzanne Junod. The combination of ads that were both suggestive on the one hand and promised effortless weight loss on the other resulted in sales that were at least 400,000 or more um, over a 10-year period. And once it became that popular and received that much um, outlandish publicity, FDA felt like they had to take action against the product, which they did. The FDA conducted a five-month trial and discovered several health risks associated with the product, including epilepsy, ulcers, and miscarriages. In April 1970, the U.S. District Court in Los Angeles issued a permanent injunction against sales of the relaxicizer. The FDA created posters to warn the public against its use. Because the relaxicizer's original company is now defunct, Mad Men was allowed to show the actual product throughout Indian summer. But no one in Mad Men knows quite what to do with the device, currently without a name or a marketing strategy. Don suggests before and after testimonials. Pete warns that the government is cracking down on false medical claims. After struggling for answers, Freddie suggests they ask Peggy. Don invites her in, much to Pete's dismay. She stands amidst the room full of men as Don explains the product and the problem. Why would you want my opinion, she asks, taking it as an accusation about her continued weight gain. But Don and Freddie agree the relaxicizer needs a woman's opinion. Can I rename it, she asks. Sure. Don says. Late that night, Peggy sits in bed surrounded by papers and books about advertising. She's interrupted by her roommate, Marjorie, who asks Peggy to pay a bill and complains about all the food she's been eating. There are only a few scenes in season one when Peggy lets her hair down, and this is one of them. I find the small moment to be quite consequential. It helps us understand Peggy's personality, that she takes her job seriously and succeeds through a lot of hard work. It's also quite telling that she lives alone, seemingly without many friends, and tends to keep to herself. When Marjorie leaves, Peggy looks nervously at the relaxicizer's massive wires. She slips on the pink undergarment under her nightgown and lays down in bed. But after just a few moments, she gasps, springs up, tears off the device, throws it on the floor, and kicks it. Betty sits in bed alone, reading an issue of the magazine Family Circle. She's startled by a noise she hears through the open window, but Don's not there to help, and she turns out the light and falls asleep by herself. Remember that Betty has made several allusions to her fear of being alone, most notably in Babylon, when she tells Don she'd rather disappear than grow old and become undesirable. Later in Babylon, Betty asks Don to buy an air conditioner for the bedroom. Several months have passed since then, and Indian Summer reveals that Don hasn't purchased the air conditioner, and that he's spending less time at home than ever. The shot of Betty alone in the darkness fades into one of Don and Rachel. Rachel's apartment has few scenes in the show, but it always strikes me with its warm tones and luxurious decor. Contrast this with Midge's apartment, or the Draper's home. It feels like a place put together by a single, career woman, like Rachel, but the lighting makes it almost more romantic. Rachel lays in bed with Don. She admits that she dreams of them being together. I don't understand where this is going, she says. Don tries to calm her fears, saying he hasn't figured out what to do about his marriage. But Rachel's words seem inevitable when she says, 
I'm worried that this is a fantasy. Rachel speculates about this the next day over lunch with her sister. We're back at The Prince, the same restaurant shown multiple times in episode 2. I think the point of this scene is to show how much Rachel thinks about Don, and how inexperienced she is with romantic relationships in general. The conversation is full of nervous naivete, mixed with excitement. Rachel admits to her sister that Don is married. Barbara seems alarmed by this, and warns her to stay away. She makes a roundabout reference to the 1951 movie, A Place in the Sun, suggesting Don might murder Rachel, or his wife. They open a fortune cookie that reads simply, You are your own worst enemy. Rachel's warned about Don by several characters throughout season 1. You'll recall that her father Abe warned her about Don in our last episode, saying, I hope you know what you're doing. And I think it adds a sense of hopelessness to Rachel's character, that we can all see what's coming while she's blinded by this naive infatuation she has for Don. Meanwhile, at Sterling Cooper, Peggy walks into Don's office to tell him about what she's now calling the Rejuvenator. Don reaches into his desk for a shirt, recalling a scene from Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. It's a loaded scene, a mix of awkward and comical, as Peggy tries to tell Don what the device does without explicitly saying it. She eventually gets Don to understand, saying, It vibrates, and that coincides with how you wear it. What's always interested me about Don is how genuinely he treats Peggy. He's obviously a notorious womanizer, but he doesn't show the same crude misogyny of our other characters. He doesn't make sexual jokes and rarely participates in the office's frat boy behavior. We saw hints of this in Long Weekend, when Don seems really uncomfortable around Eleanor Ames. And this scene with Peggy again portrays Don as empathetic. He understands the awkwardness of this conversation for Peggy. For me, this is critical to how Don and Peggy's relationship develops. From Mad Men's pilot episode, Peggy strives to be taken seriously for her work. Don is one of the first men to afford her this treatment, recognizing her talent and treating her as an equal. Peggy seems to grow comfortable around Don as a result, and I think it helps drive her career as a copywriter. I've reflected a bit about why Don isn't as openly crude at the office, asking questions like, are his affairs less about sex than about expressing some part of himself? Is his restraint due to his own lack of comfort with sex? Does he perhaps have some underlying moral views about how he treats women? I've concluded that Don's attitude arises more from his guardedness than from any strict sense of morality. He strives to keep his affairs much like his identity private. He's compartmentalized the more intimate part of himself, a part he rarely brings to work. And at the office, Don's interactions with women are most often motivated by his ideas about duty and professionalism. Don gives Peggy some advice. Think about it deeply, then forget it, and an idea will jump into your face, he says. Peggy takes this honestly and walks out of the office. It's one of the few madman scenes where characters talk to each other genuinely. Don's advice is poignant, almost personal, as though it's what he's doing after reflecting on his relationship with Rachel. As Peggy leaves, Bert Cooper enters through Don's open office door. He tells Don that Lucky Strike is coming for a meeting. They want to see Roger for themselves. Bert asks Don to draw attention away from Roger. Don doesn't like the idea, but he agrees to help. Betty answers the doorbell that afternoon, greeting a door-to-door -door air conditioner salesman named Bob Shaw. She tells the salesman she's not interested, but he says it's hot outside and asks to come in for a glass of water. He stands in the Draper's dining room, telling Betty that cold air is escaping through their windows. When he offers to take measurements, Betty leads him upstairs, but she stops halfway up the staircase, turns around, and tells him to leave. You know, my husband, 
I think he'd rather go to Sears, she says. There's a lot of subtext in this scene, and I think it reveals how alone Betty feels right now. The tension here is palpable for Betty. The camera angles help out, with one shot angling down over the salesman's shoulder onto Betty, while another looks up at the salesman. It all adds to a feeling of inequity, that this moment is full of sexual tension for Betty, while for Bob, it's just another sale. As they walk up the stairs, a great shot of Betty shows her realizing this sexual tension. She becomes uncomfortable, though, and the middle of the staircase is where her fantasy stops. Don lays in bed that evening, seemingly exhausted. Betty says he's working too hard, but Don disagrees. It's not that, he says. Betty tries to seduce him, but Don rejects her. She responds by bringing up the heat and the air conditioner salesman. Here Betty's trying to make Don jealous, and he fumes at the thought of Betty letting a stranger into their house. But he denies Betty the argument she's hoping for, and she falls asleep, again disappointed. Most of Sterling Cooper gathers at the office the following day. Roger walks in with his wife Mona. He announces his return, and the crowd applauds, but Mona insists he stay for only an hour. Harry and Paul stress how tired Roger looks, but Pete ignores what he thinks he should say, and instead just honestly states, he doesn't look that different to me. Don and Bert lead Roger into his office. This is where it happened, he states darkly. Joan enters, seeing Roger for the first time since his heart attack. She holds back her tears as Don asks her to help with Roger's makeup. Can you do something about his color, he says. Joan and Roger are left alone for a moment. Joan blots makeup on his cheeks, while Roger suggests she should have done the same for Nixon. This references the 1960 presidential debate, the first aired on television. In this debate, the public perceived Nixon as tired and pale. He seemed old when standing next to the younger, tanner JFK. Mad Men glosses over the debate with only this mention. It seems like an oversight given the show's treatment of the 1960 election. But Matthew Weiner has explained this, saying that the presidential debate was viewed as a decisive moment only after the election was lost. Some of this scene's dialogue was almost part of our previous episode, Long Weekend, and it feels like an extension of that episode, as Roger confesses how much he cares for Joan. Look, I want to tell you something because you're very dear to me, and I hope you understand it comes from the bottom of my damaged, damaged heart. You are the finest piece of ass I ever had. And I don't care who knows it. I am so glad I got to roam those hillsides. Joan breaks down as Roger continues. I've had a lot of time to think about the things I've done and been sorry about, and being with you is not one of them. Roger's line about roaming those hillsides is one of the few bits of Mad Men dialogue censored by AMC. It was initially more explicit, with Roger saying, I'm so glad I got to be inside you. I think what the show ended with, and the rest of the scene, really fits for Roger. It's equally honest, heartfelt, and hilarious. Actor John Cullum returns to Mad Men as Lee Garner Sr., the president of Lucky Strike. He marvels in a thick southern accent about the New York-style deli spread as Don and Roger enter the conference room. They discuss Lucky Strike's burgeoning sales and the government's continued efforts to pass anti-smoking legislation. I think this is an excellent time to provide some background about advertising's tortured relationship with the U.S. government. By the early 20th century, two forces had risen in American society, patent medicines and muckraker journalism. Many companies were selling commercial products known as patent medicines, 
promising medical benefits without any scientific proof. At the same time, journalists found an audience eager to read stories of corporate corruption. Beginning in 1905, Samuel Hopkins Adams published a series of 11 articles exposing false claims made about these patent medicines. The series was titled The Great American Fraud and led to the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, which required product labeling with active ingredients, among other consumer protections. Government restrictions continued with the 1914 Federal Trade Commission Act. This transformed the U.S. Bureau of Corporations into the FTC and granted the agency authority to prevent unfair business practices. The FTC's first action came in 1916, when it ordered a company to stop using the term silk, spelled with a C, except in references to authentic silk, spelled with an S. This action began a shift in focus, from antitrust cases to cracking down on misleading sales tactics. In 1938, the government passed the Wheeler-Leah Act, granting the FTC the ability to restrict unfair and deceptive advertising. The 1947 Lanham Act allowed private citizens to sue companies for deception. And in the 1960s, the government focused heavily on tobacco companies. Lee Garner and several others allude to the coming legislation, still years from passing. But the Federal Cigarette Labeling and Advertising Act of 1965 is coming, and Garner doesn't think an army of lawyers can stop it. Lucky Strike will eventually have to label their cigarettes with warnings that say, smoking may be hazardous to your health. And not long after that, their ads will be banned from both TV and radio. Roger tries to inject some nonchalance into the conversation. He suggests that now's not the time to worry about these problems. He takes a bite of a pastrami sandwich and lights up a cigarette. I've been spending a lot of time with my wife, Roger jokes, but he suddenly clutches his chest and shouts, Oh, Jesus, as Don loosens his tie. It's Roger's second heart attack in two episodes. The ambulance drivers wheel Roger out of the office once again. This time, Mona and Joan look on. Mona approaches Bert and Lee Garner. Mona, sweetheart, this was a mistake, Bert laments. I used to think you couldn't put a value on a human life, she says, but I never asked Bert Cooper, did I? When Mona walks away, Bert whispers reassurances to Garner. Don has everything under control, he says. Garner isn't worried himself, but he advises Bert to make a gesture that will convince his shareholders. I suggest you do something to keep him around, Garner recommends. They stand together in a staged, almost theatrical two-shot, facing forward at the camera. Pete looks on suspiciously from afar. Later that afternoon, the junior admin sit in Pete's office and speculate about Sterling Cooper's future. Sal jokes about sending out his resume. Harry predicts that Don will be made partner, and Paul wonders if Don even likes him. Pete grows annoyed by Don's rise at the agency. It's a funny scene that caricatures each of these guys. Sal is flippant, Paul acts insecure, and Pete is obviously jealous. I think Harry's particularly interesting here. I didn't expect him to understand Sterling Cooper's politics this well. Perhaps Harry's been playing things to his benefit all along. Meanwhile in Ossining, Betty tells Francine about the air conditioner salesman. Francine has had her baby and seems tired of it already. She was supposed to be breastfeeding in this scene, but Mad Men cut it from the episode. Betty says that Don was jealous. Francine asks why she would tell him at all. Late that night, Don calls Betty's psychiatrist from his home office. He's angry that Betty's anxiety has gotten worse. After hundreds of dollars, all you've managed to do was make her more unhappy, he says. Dr. Wayne suggests a more thorough treatment with psychoanalysis. Don says he'll think about it, then hangs up. Matthew Weiner has revealed that Don wants to leave Betty, but feels he can't. 
He perceives Betty as too emotionally frail. He's frustrated that Betty's psychiatry hasn't imbued her with the independence to be left alone. I think Weiner's comments add vital context. They change the way I perceive this scene. I never really took Don and Rachel's relationship seriously, but hearing Weiner's justification makes me think that Don did want to leave Betty, that he did see Rachel differently from other women, like Midge. Peggy goes on a date that evening at La Trombetta, a seafood restaurant. This scene was shot at the HMS Bounty restaurant in Koreatown, Los Angeles, which opened in 1962. Actress Elizabeth Moss claims this is her favorite scene in season one, and you can see Peggy's confidence throughout. She smokes her only cigarette of the season and orders a fancy drink from the bar as she talks about working in Manhattan. Peggy's date, Carl Winter, seems unimpressed. He's an unassuming truck driver from Brooklyn. When he mentions that he delivers potato chips, Peggy talks about Sterling Cooper's account with Utz. The road was expensive, but the hard part was learning that truck. Special license. We have a potato chip account. Utz. You get free ones? I do. I don't know. I don't like potato chips. Peggy brings up her copywriting for Belle Jolie, but Carl claims he's immune to advertising. He's so clearly different from the male characters in Mad Men's cast, comfortable with his life, not striving for something more. Carl grows annoyed by Peggy's dismissiveness. He takes her comments about him as an insult and eventually retaliates. I'm my own boss, you know? You get off the train every day at Grand Central and they spray you with gold? Let me tell you, you can act like you're from Manhattan, but you don't look like those girls. Peggy gets up to leave, and Carl stops her to apologize. That wasn't nice, he says. But Peggy isn't persuaded. She grabs her purse and leaves, telling Carl, Those people in Manhattan, they are better than us. Because they want things they haven't seen. The following morning, Peggy wears a woman's suit and a skirt at the office as she presents the weight loss machine. Combined with a sensible diet, the rejuvenator, You'll love the way it makes you feel. The men love the pitch, but remain confused about the product. When Peggy struggles to explain, Don jumps in. It provides the pleasure of a man without the man, he says. The men laugh and joke about each other's wives. Don tells Peggy to come up with a new name. This scene, for me, summarizes Indian Summer's core theme, that as Peggy gains more acceptance as a copywriter, she's forced to become one of the guys and accept the treatment of her male co-workers. She's no longer sexualized, and she seems unsure of what to do when Ken brings up Freddy's wife. As the men leave, Ken gives her a light punch on the shoulder. Good work, Pegs, he says. Betty does laundry at home that afternoon. Her washing machine clatters against the floor, and she presses herself into it, closing her eyes and fantasizing about having sex with the air conditioning salesman. The fantasy unfolds in a montage, accompanied by Astro Gilberto's bossa nova standard, Agua de Beber. Back at Sterling Cooper, Peggy knocks on Don's door. She says the secretary pool is too distracting and asks for her own office. Don challenges her to ask for more. You've presented like a man, now act like one. Peggy asks for a raise, and Don laughs at how little she's paid. But Peggy is interrupted by Burke Cooper. He asks to speak with Don in private. They walk into Roger's office, where Cooper offers to make Don a partner at the agency. 
Don is satisfied and accepts the offer, with one condition. He still doesn't want a contract. No contract. Of course you'd say that. Beware the non-conformist. We should point out that most employees in Don's situation would be thrilled to have a contract, but we've seen Don's dislike for attachment throughout Season 1, and we learned where this comes from in Episode 8, The Hobo Code. Don doesn't want to feel tied down by his responsibility to Sterling Cooper. He instead wants the freedom to run away, whenever, wherever. Cooper tells Don to run the agency. The first step is hiring a new head of account services, and Pete's figured this out as he walks into Roger's office the first to congratulate Don. Pete's so transparently sycophantic in this scene, it makes me laugh. He suggests that he and Don work well together, but for Don, this moment is more personal, and he contemptuously rejects Pete's offer. It makes me wonder what might have happened if Don had hired Pete at that moment. Perhaps Pete's ego would have gotten out of control. I think their adversarial relationship would have continued, with each driving for more power within the agency, and Don would have perhaps grown frustrated taking the next opportunity to leave for a more prominent agency like McCann. But Pete won't become the next head of accounts at Sterling Cooper, and the guy who does will become another of Don's adversaries. Don leaves the office early that day. As he walks past Peggy, he grants her promotion and gives her a raise. He promises to talk to Joan about getting Peggy in office. But Peggy wants to break the news herself, and Don allows her. Go out and celebrate with your friends, he says. It's ironic because Peggy is seemingly friendless at this moment. She doesn't spend time with her roommate. Her date is a mess. Throughout this episode, she has zero scenes with other women at the office. Peggy's career is taking off, but while she's setting herself apart through her diligence and talent, she's perhaps alienating people in the process, and she's not going to find advertising welcoming to her femininity. Pete stumbles out of his office at the end of the day, placing a glass on Hildy's chair. He struts into Don's empty office and sits in Don's chair. A boy from the mailroom delivers a package to Don's desk, and we get a Hitchcock-esque zoom on the brown box, the misspelled Donald Draper written above the building address. Pete looks at the package and shakes it, placing it back on the desk, but before he leaves, he grabs it and takes it with him. Finally satisfied by her afternoon with the washing machine, Betty apologizes to Don that evening. He tells her that he's been made a partner at the agency, and she grows excited. She takes his hand and kisses him, but Don seems distant, still upset that he can't leave her. Peggy celebrates with a glass of wine in her bedroom. She studies herself in the mirror and realizes how fat she's become. A few moments later, she grabs the relaxicizer and slides it under her nightgown. Julie London's bossa nova song, Fly Me to the Moon, begins to play as Peggy lays in bed and the episode cuts to credits. After an episode like Long Weekend with such varied and powerful emotional tones, Indian Summer feels much more straightforward. It's a rare Mad Men episode where I find the story more prominent than the people. There are, of course, some exceptions to this, Peggy's date, for example. But I place Indian Summer as more of a transition, an episode focused on tying up loose ends and setting up the end of season one. We've not seen Adam Whitman since 5G. Don seems content that his money will keep Adam out of his life. But Don's indifference has driven his brother to despair. Indian Summer's events are setting Adam up to have a profound impact on Don. It's as though Don can't outrun a past that's increasingly catching up with him. We have to wonder, then, about the consequences of Pete finding Adam's package. 
Mad Men really emphasize the box, first in Adam's scene, then in Don's office. I think Chekhov's gun applies here. If we're not going to find something story-breaking in the box, it shouldn't be there. That Adam misspells Don's name is something I find clever. Don's name doesn't really mean anything at this point. It's as though any name could be on that box. There will obviously be consequences of Don's promotion to partner. Work will become even more prominent in his life. His relationships with Sterling Cooper's junior employees will change. But perhaps less obviously, his friendship with Roger will change, as they now occupy the same level of authority. Remember Roger's power plays throughout Season 1? The tolerate-me-because-I'm-your-commanding-officer attitude that Roger shows in episodes like Red in the Face and Long Weekend is no longer going to work. While Indian Summer seems like an episode heavier on promises than on payoffs, I think the focus thematic concept is well executed. It's about success and the personal sacrifices we make on that rise up the corporate ladder. This is embodied most clearly in Roger, Don, and Peggy. Roger's had two heart attacks in two episodes, both at work. Don's relationships are falling apart, and Peggy's become totally desexualized. This was the last stage of Peggy's fat suits. Through them, we've seen Peggy's transformation. She began as the new girl that every man wanted to sleep with, and by Indian summer, she's been totally desexualized. Peggy's become one of the guys, as she's developed into a successful writer. Much like Don, she brings work home. Her professional success comes at a cost, one we're reminded of when Don tells her, go celebrate with your friends. Peggy has risen alongside Don, a man who's also ascending professionally. But throughout Indian summer, we're reminded of Don's tumultuous personal life, of his frustrating marriage, his affairs, and his inescapable past. Mad Men often portrays the dark side of the American dream, the conflicting desires of success, and how these desires impact people. And in Don, we see his cold, driven self-determinism alienating the people who want to get close to him. We'll leave things here for now. There are only two episodes left in season one, and Mad Men is about to make good on many of the promises we've discussed here. And I know some of you are thinking, it's October now, that whole campaign story has to pay off soon, right? Don't worry, we're going to get to that soon, really soon. Because in our next episode, we'll look back on November 8th, 1960, the day of the 1960 presidential election between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. Hey everyone, I wanted to share a few quick announcements to wrap up the show. Number one, you may have noticed, but I've created some new episode art exclusively for season one. Number two, I've set up social media accounts that are linked in the episode description. You can now find me on Instagram and YouTube, where I'll release more Mad Men content. And finally, number three, I really appreciate your feedback and encourage you to like and comment on my episodes, and please subscribe to the podcast so you know when new content arrives. As always, you can reach out to me with any questions or comments. My email address is madmendeconstructedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and see you next episode.